Thanks, Patrick. Thank you. KBOO Portland on 90.7 FM and streaming on the web at kboo.fm. Do you love music but don't have the energy to find new stuff? Can't decide whether you want to hear indie rock or hip-hop, electronic music or singer-songwriters? Then tune into Another Late Night every first Saturday at 3 a.m. only on KBOO Community Radio or stream online at kboo.fm slash anotherlatenight where we've got it all. This is Community Radio for the Northwest, KBOO Portland. Coming up at midnight... Self-Help Radio. Right now, the following program contains adult language and adult situations. But of course, it's the bedtime radio show for grown-ups. It's Gremlin Time. You are entering a zone of sound and imagery. A landscape of frequency. A vocabulary of modulation. There is the signpost up ahead. Please adjust your chronometers. This is Gremlin Time. Good evening and welcome to the Bedtime Radio Show for Grown Ups, Gremlin Time. I am your host and producer, Fortunato. Tonight, we've traveled to the big city, Gotham, the Big Apple, New York, New York, for a story by Lawrence Block, read to us by Skin Man Blue, and featuring our Gremlin Time 3D radio players, including Abergene Plum, Payne's Gray, and Turquoise Rom. So listen now to part one of By the Dawn's Early Light by Lawrence Block. All this happened a long time ago. Abe Bean was living in Gracie Mansion, although even he seemed to have trouble believing he was really the mayor of the city of New York. Ali was in his prime, and the Knicks still had a year or so left in Bradley and DeBusher. I was still drinking in those days, of course, and at the time it seemed to be doing more for me than it was doing to me. I had already left my wife and kids, my home in Syosset and the NYPD. I was living in the hotel on West 57th Street, where I still live, and I was doing most of my drinking around the corner in Jimmy Armstrong's saloon. The old man had 
a seat. I'll get that coffee set up. Billy was the nighttime bartender, his own best customer for the 12-year-old Jameson. He was here a minute ago. A Filipino youth named Dennis was behind the stick most days. Yo, man, hey. And Tommy Tillery was one of the regulars. Yo, man, hey. He was big, probably 6'2", full in the chest, big in the belly, too. <laughs> he rarely showed up in a suit, but always wore a jacket and a tie, usually a navy and burgundy blazer with gray flannel slacks or white duck pants in warmer weather. He had a loud voice that boomed from his barrel chests and a big clean-shaven face that was innocent around the pouting mouth and knowing around the eyes. He was somewhere in his late 40s and he drank a lot of top-shelf scotch. Chivas as I remember it, but it could have been Johnny Black. Whatever it was, his face was beginning to show it, with patches of permanent flush at the cheekbones and a tracery of broken capillaries across the bridge of the nose. Yo, man, hey. We were saloon friends. We didn't speak every time we ran into each other, but at least we always acknowledged one another with a nod or a wave. He told a lot of dialect jokes. So I'll get a guinea lawyer. <laughs> told them reasonably well, and I laughed at my share of them. Sometimes I was in a mood to reminisce about my days in the force, and when my stories were funny, his laugh was as loud as anyone's. <laughs> That's a good one. About a third of the time, he was in the company of a short and curvy blonde named Carolyn. Carolyn from the Caroline was the way he occasionally introduced her. And she did have a faint southern accent that became more pronounced as the drink got to her. Generally, they came in together, but sometimes he got there first and she joined him later. Then one morning, I picked up the Daily News and read the burglars had broken into a house on Colonial Road in the Bay Ridge section of Brooklyn. They had stabbed to death the only occupant present, one Margaret Tillery. Her husband, Thomas J. Tillery, a salesman, was not at home at the time. It's an uncommon name. There's a Tillery Street in Brooklyn, not far from the entrance to the Brooklyn Bridge. But I have no idea what war hero, a ward healer, they named it after, or if he's a relative of Tommy's. I hadn't known Tommy was a salesman or that he'd had a wife. He did wear a wide yellow gold band on the appropriate finger, and it was clear that he wasn't married to Carolyn from the Caroline, and it now looked as though he was a widower. I felt vaguely sorry for him, vaguely sorry for the wife I'd never even known of, but that was the extent of it. I drank enough back then to avoid feeling any emotion very strongly. He was here a minute ago. I'll see if he stepped out. And then, two or three nights later, I walked into Armstrong's, and there was Carolyn. She didn't look to be waiting for him or anyone else, nor did she look as though she'd just breezed in a few minutes ago. She had a stool by herself at the bar, and she was drinking something dark from a lowball glass. I took a seat a few stools down from her. I ordered two double shots of bourbon, drank one, and poured the other into the cup of black coffee Billy brought me. I was sipping the coffee when a voice with a Piedmont softness to it said, I forget your name. I looked up. I believe we were introduced, but I don't recall your name. It's Matt, and you're right. Tommy introduced us. You're Carolyn. Carolyn Cheatham. Carolyn Cheatham. Have you seen him? Not since it happened. Neither have I. Were you all at the funeral? No, when was it? This afternoon. Neither was I. There. Matt, why don't you buy me a drink? Or I'll buy you one, but come sit next to me so I don't have to shout. Please? She was drinking amaretto, sweet almond liqueur that she took on the rocks. It tastes like dessert, but it's as strong as whiskey. He told me not to come to the funeral. There's some place in Brooklyn. It's a whole foreign nation to me, Brooklyn. 
but a lot of people went from the office. I could have had a ride. I could have been a part of the office crowd, come to pay our respects. He said not to. He said it wouldn't look right. Because? She picked up her glass and stared into it. I've never known what people hope to see there, although it's a gesture I've performed often enough myself. He said it was a matter of respect for the dead. Respect. What did he care about respect? I would have just been a part of the office crowd. We both worked at Tannehill, far as anyone there knows, we're just friends. And all we ever were is friends, you know? Oh shit. I don't mean I wasn't fucking him, for Lord's sake. I mean, it was just laughs and good times. And he was married and he went home to Mama every night and that was just fine because who in her right mind want Tommy Tillery around by the dawn's early light? Christ in the foothills, did I spill this or drink it? We agreed that she was drinking them a little too fast. Sweet drinks, we told each other, had a way of sneaking up on a person. It was this fancy New York amaretto shit she maintained, not like the bourbon she'd grown up with. You knew where you stood with bourbon. I told her I was a bourbon drinker myself, and it pleased her to learn this. Alliances had been forged on thinner bonds than that, and hours served to propel us out of Armstrong's, with a stop down the block for a fifth of Maker's Mark, her choice, and a four-block walk to her apartment. There were exposed brick walls, I remember, and candles stuck in straw-wrapped bottles and several travel posters from Sabina, the Belgian Airlines. We did what grown-ups do when they find themselves alone together. We drank our fair share of the Maker's Mark and went to bed. <laughs> she made a lot of enthusiastic noises and more than a few skillful moves, and afterward, she cried some. A little later, she dropped off to sleep. I was tired myself, but I put on my clothes and sent myself home. Because who, in her right mind, want Matt Scudder around by the dawn's early light? Friday left me, family where the blue. against a wall Two dead ends and you still got to choose You know the bartenders They all know my name And they catch me when I'm pulling up lane And I'm a pool shooting shimmy shots shaking my head When I should be living clean instead Such a breeze 
Fumbling with the Blues. And now part two as the Gremlin Time 3D radio players present by the Dawn's Early Light, a Matt Scudder mystery by Lawrence Block. Over the next couple of days, I wondered every time I entered Armstrong's if I run into her. And each time I was more relieved and disappointed when I didn't. I didn't encounter Tommy either, and that too was a relief and in no sense disappointing. Then, one morning, I picked up the news and read that they'd arrested a pair of young Hispanics from Sunset Park for the Tillery burglary and homicide. The paper ran the usual photo, two skinny kids, their hair unruly, one of them trying to hide his face from the camera, the other smirking defiantly, and each of them handcuffed to a broad-shouldered, grim-faced Irishman in a suit. You didn't need the careful caption to tell the good guys from the bad guys. Sometime in the middle of the afternoon, I went over to Armstrong's for a hamburger and drank a beer with it, then got the day going with a round or two of laced coffee. The phone behind the bar rang, and Dennis put down the glass he was wiping and answered it. He was here a minute ago. I'll see if he stepped out. He covered the mouthpiece with his hand and looked quizzically at me. Are you still here? Or did you slip away while my attention was somehow diverted? Who wants to know? Tommy Tillery. You never know what a woman will decide to tell a man or how a man will react to it. I didn't want to find out, but I was better off learning over the phone than face to face. I nodded and took the phone from Dennis. I said, Matt Scudder, Tommy. I was sorry to hear about your wife. Thanks, Matt. Jesus, felt like it happened a year ago. It was, what, a week? At least I got the bastards. There was a pause, and he said, Jesus, you haven't seen a paper, huh? That's where I read about it, two Spanish kids. You read the news this morning? I generally do. Why? <laughs> you didn't happen to see this afternoon's post. No. Why? What happened? They turned out to be clean? Another pause. Then he said, I figured you'd know. The cops were over earlier this morning, even before I saw the story in the news. It'd be easy if you already knew. I'm not following you, Tommy. The two spicks. Clean? Shit, they're about as clean as a men's room in a Times Square subway station. The cops hit their place found stuff from my house everywhere they looked. Jewelry they had descriptions of, a stereo that I'd given them serial numbers, everything. Monogram shit. I mean, that's how clean they were, for Christ's sakes. So? They admitted the burglary, but not the murder. That's common, Tommy. Let me finish, huh? They admitted the burglary, but according to them, it was a put-up job. According to them, I hired them to hit my place. They could keep whatever they got, and I'd have everything out and arranged for them. And in return, I got to clean up on the insurance by over-reporting the loss. What did the loss amount to? Shit, I don't know. It was twice as many things turned up in their apartment as I ever listed when I made out a report. There's things I missed a few days after I filed the report, and uh, others I didn't know were gone until the cops found them. You don't notice everything right away, and at least I don't. And on top of it, how could I think straight with Peg dead? You know. It hardly sounds like an insurance setup. No, of course it wasn't. How the hell could it be? All I had was a standard homeowner's policy. It covered maybe a third of what I lost. According to them, the place was empty when they hit it. Peg was out. And? And I set them up. They hit the place, they carted everything away, and I came home with Peg and stabbed her six, eight times, whatever it was, and left her there so it looked like it happened in a burglary. How could the burglars testify that you stabbed your wife? They couldn't. All they said was they didn't, and she wasn't home when they were there, and that I hired them to do the burglary. The cops pieced the rest of it together. What did they do, arrest you? No. They came over to the house. It was early, and I, I don't know what time. Uh, uh, it was first I knew that the Spicks were arrested, let alone that they were trying to do a job on me. They just wanted to talk, the, the cops, and at first I talked to them, and then I started to get the drift of what they were trying to put onto me. 
So I wasn't saying anything more without my lawyer present, and I, I called him. He left half his breakfast on the table and came over in a hurry, and he wouldn't let me say a word. And the cops didn't take you in or book you? No. Did they buy your story? No way! I didn't really tell them a story because Captain wouldn't let me say anything. They didn't drag me in because they don't have a case yet. The Captain says they're going to be building one if they can. They told me not to leave town. You believe it? My wife's dead, the Post headline says quiz husband and burglary murder, and what the hell do you think I'm going to do? Am I going to go fishing for fucking trout in Montana? Don't leave town. You, you see this shit on television, you think nobody in real life talks this way. Maybe television's where they get it from. Why well, I called. His captain wants to hire a detective. He figured maybe these guys talked around the neighborhood, maybe they bragged to their friends, maybe there's a way to prove they did the killing. He says the cops won't concentrate on that end if they're too busy nailing the lid shut on me. I explained that I didn't have any official standing, that I had no license and filed no reports. That's okay. I told Kaplan what I wanted somebody I can trust. Somebody who'll do the job for me. I don't think they're going to have any kind of case at all, Matt, but the longer this drags on, the worse it is for me. I want it all cleared up. I want it in the papers that these Spanish assholes did it all and I had nothing to do with anything. You name a fair fee and I'll pay it. Me to you. It can be cash in your hand if you don't like checks. What do you say? He wanted somebody he could trust. Had Carolyn from the Caroline told him how trustworthy I was? What did I say? I said yes. I met Tommy Tillery and his lawyer in Drew Kaplan's office on Court Street, a few blocks from Brooklyn's Borough Hall. There was a Syrian restaurant next door, and at the corner, a grocery store specializing in Middle Eastern imports stood next to an antique shop overflowing with stripped oak furniture and brass lamps and bedsteads. Kaplan's office ran to wood paneling and leather chairs and oak file cabinets. His name and the names of two partners were painted on the frosted glass door in old-fashioned gold and black lettering. But, uh, where, where do we stand? Kaplan himself looked conservatively up-to-date with a three-piece striped suit that was better cut than mine. How do we get out of order? Tommy wore his burgundy blazer and gray flannel trousers and loafers. Oh, okay. Strain showed at the corners of his blue eyes and around his mouth. His complexion was off, too, as if anxiety had drawn the blood inward, leaving the skin sallow. All we want you to do is to find a key in one of their pants pockets, Herrera's or Cruz's, and trace it to a locker in Penn Station. And in the locker, there's a foot-long knife with their prints and her blood on it. Is that what it's going to take? It wouldn't hurt. No, actually, we're not in such bad shape. They got some shaky testimony from a pair of Latins who've been in and out of trouble since they got weaned to Tropicana. They got what looks to them like a good motive on Tommy's part. Which is? I was looking at Tommy when I talked. His eyes slipped away from mine. A marital triangle, a case of the shorts, and a strong money motive. Margaret Tillery inherited a little over a quarter of a million dollars six or eight months ago. An aunt left a million too, and it got cut four ways. What they don't bother to notice is that he loved his wife, and how many husbands cheat? What is it they say? 90% cheat and 10% lie? That's good odds. One of the killers, Angel Herrera, did some odd jobs at the Tillery house last March or April. Spring cleaning, he hauled stuff out of the basement and attic, a little donkey work for hourly wages. According to common sense, that's how Herrera and his buddy Cruz knew the house and what was in it and how to gain access. The case against Tommy sounds pretty thin. It is. The thing is, you go to court with something like this and you lose even if you win. For the rest of your life, everybody remembers you stood trial for murdering your wife, never mind that you won an acquittal. All that means some Jew lawyer bought a judge or tricked a jury. So I'll get a guinea lawyer, and they'll think he threatened the judge and beat up the jury. Besides, you never know which way a jury's gonna jump. 
Tommy's alibi was he was with another lady at the time of the burglary. The woman's a colleague. They could see it as completely above board, but who says they're going to? When they, but they sometimes do. They decide they don't believe the alibi because it's his girlfriend lying for him, and at the same time, they label him a scumbag for screwing around while his wife's getting killed. You keep it up, I'll find myself guilty the way you make it sound. <sighs> Plus, he's hard to get a sympathetic jury for. He's a big, handsome guy, a sharp dresser, and you'd love him in a gin joint, but how much do you love him in a cart room? He's a telephone security salesman. He's beautiful on the phone, and that means every clown would ever lost a $100 stock tip or bought magazine subscriptions over the phone is going to walk into the courtroom with a hard-on for him. I'm telling you, I want to stay the hell out of court. I'll win in court, I know that, or the worst that'll happen is I win on appeal, but who needs it? This is a case that shouldn't be in the first place, and I'd love to clear it up before they even go so far as presenting a bill to the grand jury. So for me, you want... Whatever you can find, Matt. Whatever discredits Cruz and Herrera. I don't know what there is to be found, but you were a cop, and now you're a private. You can get down on the streets and nose around. I could do that. One thing, wouldn't you be better off with a Spanish-speaking detective? I know enough to buy a beer in a bodega, but I'm a long ways from fluent. Kaplan shook his head. Tommy says he wants somebody he can trust. I think he's right. A personal relationship's worth more than a dime's worth of Mi llamo Mateo y como esta usted. That's the truth, Matt. I know I can count on you. I wanted to tell him all he could count on was his fingers. But I'd spent enough time carrying a shield to know not to push away money when somebody wants to give it to you. I felt comfortable taking a fee. The man was inheriting a quarter of a million dollars plus whatever insurance he carried. If he was willing to spread some of it around, I was willing to take it. So I went to Sunset Park and spent some time in the streets and some more time in the bars. Sunset Park is in Brooklyn, of course, on the borough's western edge of a Bay Ridge and south and west of Greenwood Cemetery. These days, there's a lot of brownstoning going on there, with young urban professionals renovating the old houses and gentrifying the neighborhood. Back then, the upwardly mobile young had not yet discovered Sunset Park, and the area was a mix of Latins and Scandinavians, most of the former Puerto Ricans, most of the latter Norwegians. The balance was gradually shifting from Europe to the islands, from light to dark, but this was a process that had been going on for ages, and there was nothing hurried about it. I talked to Herrera's landlord and Cruz's former employer and one of his recent girlfriends. I drank beer in bars in the back rooms of bodegas. I went to the local station house. They hadn't caught the Margaret Tillery murder case. That had been a matter for the local precinct in Bay Ridge and some detectives from Brooklyn Homicide. I read the sheets on both of the burglars and drank coffee with the cops and picked up some of the stuff that doesn't get on the yellow sheets. I found out that Miguelito Cruz once killed a man in a tavern brawl over a woman. There were no charges pressed. A dozen witnesses reported the dead man had gone after Cruz first with a broken bottle. Cruz had most likely been carrying the knife, but several witnesses insisted it had been tossed to him by an anonymous benefactor, and there hadn't been enough evidence to make a case of weapons possession, let alone homicide. I learned that Herrera had three children living with their mother in Puerto Rico. He was divorced but wouldn't marry his current girlfriend because he regarded himself as still married to his ex-wife in the eyes of God. He sent money to his children when he had any to send. I learned other things. They didn't seem terribly consequential then, and they faded from memory altogether by now. But I wrote them down in my pocket notebook as I learned them, and every day or so, I duly reported my findings to Drew Kaplan. He always seemed pleased with what I told him. You're listening to Gremlin Time as we present our 3D radio production of By the Dawn's Early Light. This is Community Radio, KBOO Portland. Before we get back to our story, another musical break. Please don't write 
even telephone Cause I want you person to person Bring your big find fox yourself on home Don't send me no message You know, you know I'm all alone And I need you person to person Bring your big find fox yourself on home Ain't no need to telephone me I can't love no telephone All that time you're telephoning You could be making it on home Ain't no need to write no letter I can't hug no paper tight Ain't no use to send no message It can't talk to me at night Ain't no need to send your brother I won't talk to no one else Ain't no use to send your mother You just got to come yourself How I have suffered Each day and night Since you've been gone And I want you Person to person Bring your big find the fox yourself on home Bring it home You used to hug me every morning Squeeze me every night And now that you have left me And now back to By the Dawn's Early Light by Lawrence Block. Some nights I stayed fairly late in Sunset Park. There was a dark, beery tavern called the Fjord that served as a comfortable enough harbor after I tired of playing Sam Spade. But I almost invariably managed to stop at Armstrong's before I called it a night. Billy would lock the door around two, but he'd keep serving till four, and he'd let you in if he knew you. Crashed in the foothills. Did I spill this or drink it? One night she was there, Carolyn Cheatham, drinking bourbon this time instead of amaretto, her face frozen with stubborn old pain. Ah. It took her a blink or two to recognize me. Then tears started to form in the corners of her eyes, and she used the back of one hand to wipe them away. I didn't approach her until she beckoned. She patted the stool beside hers, and I eased myself onto it. I had coffee with bourbon in it and bought a refill for her. She was pretty drunk already, but that's never been enough reason to turn down a drink. She talked about Tommy. He was being nice to her. He calls and sends flowers. He might need to testify and he'd need me to back him up. But he won't see me, because it wouldn't look right. 
Not for a new widower. Not for a man publicly accused of murder. He sends me flowers with no cards on them. He calls me from payphones, the son of a bitch. Hey, Mac, come over here a second. Billy called me aside. I didn't want to put her out. Nice woman like that, shit-faced as she is, but I thought I was going to have to. You'll see she gets home, all right? I said I would. First, I had to let her buy us another round, she insisted. Then I got her out of there and a cab came along and saved us the walk. At her place, I took the keys from her and unlocked the door. She half sat, half sprawled on the couch. I had to use the bathroom, and when I came back, her eyes were closed and she was snoring lightly. I got her coat and shoes off, put her to bed, loosened her clothing and covered her with a blanket. I was tired from all that and sat down on the couch for a minute and I almost dozed off myself. Then I snapped awake and let myself out. Her door had a spring lock. All I had to do was close it and it was locked. Much of the walk back to my hotel disappeared in blackout. I was crossing 57th Street and then it was morning. And I was stretched out in my own bed, my clothes a tangle on the straight back chair. That happened a lot in those days, that kind of before bed blackout, and I used to insist it didn't bother me. Whatever happened on the way home, why waste brain cells remembering the final 15 minutes of the day? I went back to Sunset Park the next day. I learned that Cruz had been in trouble as a youth. With a gang of neighborhood kids, he used to go into the city in Cruz Greenwich Village, looking for homosexuals to beat up. He had a dread of homosexuality, probably flowing as it generally does out of a fear of a part of himself, and he stifled that dread by fag bashing. He still don't like them, a woman told me. She had glossy black hair and opaque eyes, and she was letting me pay for her rum and orange juice. He's pretty, you know, and they come on to him, and he don't like it. I called that item in along with a few others, equally earth-shaking. I bought myself a steak dinner at the Slade over on 10th Avenue that night, then finished up at Armstrong's, not drinking very hard, just coasting along in bourbon and coffee. Twice the phone rang for me. I'll see if he stepped out. Once it was Tommy Tillery telling me how much he appreciated what I was doing for him. It seemed to me that all I was doing was taking his money, but he had me believing that my loyalty and invaluable assistance were all he had to cling to. He was here a minute ago. The second call was from Carolyn. More praise. I was a gentleman, she assured me, and a hell of a fellow all around. And I should forget that she'd been bad-mouthing Tommy. Everything was going to be fine with them. I told her I'd never doubted it for a minute, and that I couldn't really remember what she said anyway. I took the next day off. I think I went to a movie, and it may have been The Sting, with Newman and Redford achieving vengeance through swindling. The day after that, I did another tour of duty over in Brooklyn. And the day after that, I picked up the news first thing in the morning. The headline was nonspecific, something like, Kill Suspect, Hang Self in Cell. But I knew it was my case before I turned to the story on page three. Miguelito Cruz had torn his clothing into strips, knotted the strips together, stood his iron bedstead on its side, climbed onto it, looped his homemade rope around an overhead pipe, and jumped off the upended bedstead and into the next world. That evening, 6 o'clock TV news had the rest of the story. Informed of his friend's death, Angel Herrera had recanted his original story and admitted that he and Cruz had conceived and executed the Tillery burglary on their own. It had been Miguelito who had stabbed the Tillery woman when she walked in on them. He picked up a kitchen knife while Herrera watched in horror. 
Miguelito always had a short temper, Herrera said, but they were friends, even cousins, and they had hatched their story to protect Miguelito. But now that he was dead, Herrera could admit what had really happened. I was in Armstrong's that night, which was not remarkable. I had it in my mind to get drunk, though I could not have told you why, and that was remarkable, if not unheard of. I got drunk a lot those days, but I rarely set out with that intention. I just wanted to feel a little better, a little more mellow, and somewhere along the way I'd wind up waxed. I wasn't drinking particularly hard or fast, but I was working at it. And then somewhere around 10 or 11, the door opened, and I knew who it was before I turned around. Hey, look who's here! Tommy Tillery, well-dressed and freshly barbered, making his first appearance in Jimmy's place since his wife was killed. People rushed over to shake his hand. Billy was behind the stick, and he'd no sooner set one up on the house for our hero than Tommy insisted on buying a round for the bar. It was an expensive gesture. There must have been 30 or 40 people in there. But I don't think he cared if there were three or 400. I stayed where I was, letting the others mob him. Yo, man, hey. But he worked his way over to me and got an arm around my shoulders. This is the man. Best fucking detective ever wore out a pair of shoes. Billy, this man's money is no good at all tonight. He can't buy a drink. He can't buy a cup of coffee. If you went and put in paid toilets since the last I was here, he can't use his own dime. Hey, the John's still free. Don't be giving the boss any new ideas. Hold on, tell me he didn't already think of it. Matt, my boy, I love you. I was in a tight spot. I didn't want to walk out of my own house. You came through for me. What the hell had I done? I hadn't hanged Miguelito Cruz or coaxed the confession out of Angel Herrera. I hadn't even set eyes on either man. But he was buying the drinks and I had a thirst. So who was I to argue? I don't know how long we stayed there. Curiously, my drinking slowed down even as Tommy's picked up speed. Carolyn, I noticed, was not present, nor did her name find its way into the conversation. I wondered if she would walk in. It was, after all, her neighborhood bar, and she was apt to drop in on her own. I wondered what would happen if she did. I guess there were a lot of things I wondered about, and perhaps that's what put the brakes on my own drinking. I didn't want any gaps in my memory, any gray patches in my awareness. Yo, man, hey! After a while, Tommy was hustling me out of Armstrong's. It's the celebration time. We don't want to sit in one place till we grow roots. We want to pop a little. He had a car, and I just went along with him without paying too much attention to exactly where we were. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. We went to a noisy Greek club on the east side, I think, where the waiters looked like mob hitmen. We went to a couple of trendy singles joints. <laughs> We wound up somewhere in the village, in a dark, beery cave that reminded me, I realized after a while, of the Norwegian joint in Sunset Park, the fjord. It was quiet there, and conversation was possible, and I found myself asking him what I'd done that was so praiseworthy. One man had killed himself and another had confessed, and where was my role in either incident? The stuff you came up with. What stuff? I should have brought back fingernail pairings. You could have had someone work voodoo on them. About Cruz and the fairies. He was up for murder. He didn't kill himself because he was afraid they'd get him for fag bashing when he was a juvenile offender. Tommy took a sip of scotch. A couple of days ago, Black Kite comes up to Cruz in the chow line. Huge spade, built like the Seagram's building. Where do you get up to Greenhaven, he tells him. Every blood there's gonna have you for a girlfriend. Kaplan, Drew, talked to somebody who talked to somebody, and that did it. 
Bruce took a good look at the idea of playing Drop the Sofa, half the jigs in captivity, and the next thing you know, the murderous little bastard was dancing on air. And good riddance to him. I couldn't seem to catch my breath. I worked on it while Tommy went to the bar for another round. I hadn't touched the drink in front of me, but I let him buy for both of us. When he got back, I said, Herrera? Changed his story, made a full confession. And pinned the killing on Cruz? Why not? Cruz wasn't around to complain. Who knows which one of them did it, and for, for that matter, who cares? The thing is, you gave us the lever. For Cruz to get him to kill himself. And for Herrera. Those kids of his in San Trusi? Drew spoke to Herrera's lawyer, and Herrera's lawyer spoke to Herrera, and the message was, look, you're going up for burglary, whatever you do. And probably for murder. But if you tell the right story, you'll draw a shorter time. And on top of that, that nice Mr. Tillery's going to let bygones be bygones. And every month, there's a nice check for your wife and kitties back home in Puerto Rico. At the bar, a couple of old men were reliving the Lewis Schmeling fight, the second one, where Lewis punished the German champion. One of the old fellows was throwing roundhouse punches in the air, demonstrating. I said, who killed your wife? One or the other of them. If I had to bet, I'd say Cruz. He had those beady little eyes. You looked at him up close and you got that he was a killer. When did you look at him up close? When they came and cleaned the house, the basement and the attic. Not when they came and cleaned me out, that was the second time. He smiled, but I kept looking at him until the smile lost its certainty. That was Herrera who helped around the house. You never met Cruz. Cruz came along, gave him a hand. You never mentioned that before. Oh, sure I did, Matt. What difference does it make anyway? Who killed her, Tommy? Hey, let it alone, huh? Answer the question. I already answered it. You killed her, didn't you? Are you crazy? Cruz killed her and Herrera swore to it. Isn't that enough for you? Tell me you didn't kill her. I didn't kill her. Tell me again. I didn't fucking kill her. What's the matter with you? I don't believe you. Oh, Jesus. You know, it's a funny thing with me. Over the telephone, I'm the best salesman you could ever imagine. I swear I could sell sand to the Arabs. I could sell ice in the winter. But face to face, I'm no good at all. Why do you figure that is? You tell me. I don't know. I used to think it was my face, the eyes and the mouth. I don't know. It's easy over the telephone. I'm talking to a stranger. I don't know who he is or what he looks like, and he's not looking at me. It's a cinch. Face to face, especially with someone I know, it's a different story. He looked at me. If we were doing this over the phone, you'd buy the whole thing. It's possible. It's fucking certain. Word for word. You'd buy the package. Suppose I was to tell you I did kill her. You couldn't prove anything. Look, the both of us walked in there. The place was a mess from the burglary. We got an argument, tempers flared. Something happened. You set up the burglary. You planned the whole thing just the way Cruz and Herrera accused you of doing. And now you wriggled out of it. And you helped me. Don't forget that part of it. I won't. And I wouldn't have gone away for it anyway, Matt. Not a chance. I'd have beat it in court. Only this way, I don't have to go to court. Look, this is just the booze talking. And we can both forget it in the morning, right? I didn't kill her. You didn't accuse me. We're still buddies. Everything's fine. Right? Blackouts are never there when you want them. I woke up the next day and remembered all of it, and I found myself wishing I didn't. He'd killed his wife, and he was getting away with it. And I'd helped him. I'd taken his money, and in return, I'd shown him how to set one man up for suicide and pressure another into making a false confession. And what was I going to do about it? I couldn't think of a thing. Any story I carried to the police would speedily be denied by Tommy and his lawyer, and all I had was the thinnest of hearsay evidence, my own client's own words when he and I both had a skin full of booze. I went over it for a few days, looking for ways to shake something loose, and there was nothing. I could maybe interest a newspaper reporter, 
Maybe get Tommy some press coverage that wouldn't make him happy. But why? And to what purpose? It rankled. But I would just have a couple of drinks, and then it wouldn't rankle so much. Angel Herrera pleaded to burglary, and in return, the Brooklyn DA's office dropped all homicide charges. He went upstate to serve five to ten. And then I got a call in the middle of the night. I've been sleeping a couple of hours, but the phone woke me and I groped for it. It took me a minute to recognize the voice on the other end. It was Carolyn Cheatham. I had to call you. On account of you, a bourbon man and a gentleman. I owed it to you to call you. What's the matter? He ditched me. And he got fired out of Tannehill and Company, so he won't have to look at me around the office. Once he didn't need me, he let go of me. Do you know he did it over the phone? Carolyn. It's all in the note. I'm leaving a note. Look, don't do anything yet. I was out of bed, fumbling for my clothes. I'll be right over. We'll talk about it. You can't stop me, Matt. I won't try to stop you. We'll talk first, and then you can do anything you want. The phone clicked in my ear. I threw my clothes on, rushed over there, hoping it would be pills, something that took its time. I broke a small pane of glass in the downstairs door and let myself in, then used an old credit card to slip the bolt of her spring lock. If she had engaged the deadbolt lock, I would have had to kick the door in. The room smelled of cordite. She was on the couch she passed out on the last time I saw her. The gun was still in her hand, limp at her side, and there was a black-rimmed hole in her temple. There was a note, too. An empty bottle of Maker's Mark stood on the coffee table, an empty glass beside it. The booze showed in her handwriting and in the sullen phrasing of the suicide note. I read the note. I stood there for a few minutes, not for very long, and then I got a dish towel from the Pullman kitchen and wiped the bottle in the glass. I took another matching glass, rinsed it out and wiped it, and put it in the drain board of the sink. I stuffed the note in my pocket. I took the gun from her fingers, checked routinely for a pulse, then wrapped a sofa pillow around the gun to muffle its report. I fired one round into her chest, and another into her open mouth. I dropped the gun into a pocket and left. They found the gun in Tommy Tillery's house, stuffed between the cushions of the living room sofa, clean of prints inside and out. Ballistics got a perfect match. I'd aim for soft tissue with the round shot into her chest because bullets can fragment on impact with bone. That was one reason I'd fired the extra shots. The other was to rule out the possibility of suicide. After the story made the papers, I picked up the phone and called Drew Kaplan. He didn't sound happy. I don't understand that. He was free and clear. Why the hell did he kill the girl? Ask him yourself. If you want my opinion, he's a lunatic. I honestly didn't think he was. I figured maybe he killed his wife, maybe he didn't. Not my job to try him. But I didn't figure he was a homicidal maniac. It's certain he killed the girl? Not much question. The gun's pretty strong evidence. Talk about finding somebody with a smoking pistol in his hand. Here it was in Tommy's couch. The idiot. Funny he kept it. Maybe he had other people he wanted to shoot. Go figure a crazy man. No, the gun's evidence. And there was a phone tip. A man called in the shooting, reported a man running out of there, and gave a description that fitted Tommy pretty well. Even had him wearing that red blazer he wears. Tacky thing. Makes him look like an usher at the Paramount. It sounds tough to square. Well, somebody else will have to try to do it. I told him I can't defend him this time. What it amounts to is I wash my hands of him. All this happened a long time ago. Angel Herrera got out just the other day. He served all 10 years because he was as good at getting into trouble inside the walls as he'd been on the outside. <laughs> Somebody killed Tommy Tillery with a homemade knife after he'd served two years and three months of a manslaughter stretch. 
I wondered at the time if that was Herrera getting even, and I don't suppose I'll ever know. Maybe the check stopped going to Santurce and Herrera took it the wrong way. Or maybe Tommy said the wrong thing face to face to somebody else instead of over the phone. I don't think I do it that way now. I don't drink anymore. And the impulse to play God seems to have evaporated with the booze. But then, a lot of things have changed. Billy left Armstrong's not long after that. Left New York, too. The last I heard, he was off drink himself, living in Sausalito and making candles. I ran into Dennis the other day. How you doing? In a bookstore on Lower Fifth Avenue, full of odd volumes on yoga and spiritualism and holistic healing. And Armstrong's is scheduled to close the end of next month. Armstrong's? Yes, ma'am, he's right here. The lease is up for renewal. Hey, Tony, your wife's on the phone. What? And I suppose the next you know, the old joint will be another Korean fruit market. I still light a candle now and then for Carolyn Cheatham and Miguelito Cruz. Not very often, just once in a while. Fifteen million stories in the Naked City, and tonight's was written by Lawrence Block, entitled "By the Dawn's Early Light." And see, Lawrence Block has a paperback version of his book uh, "Grifter's Game" that's coming out uh, this month, and there's also a collection of his short stories in a uh, trade paperback entitled "Enough Rope." This is Fortunato here. Let's see. Uh, in tonight's cast, we had our 3D radio players. We got the... If you see any of these people on the street, give them a round of applause. Um, the crew at Armstrong's, we had uh, Golden Whiskey and uh, Ubu Orange and myself in there. But the real players, these guys. Um, Payne's Gray was uh, Drew Kaplan. Abergine Plum was Carolyn Cheatham. Turquoise Rom. Tommy Tillery, and Skin Man Blue as Matt Scudder. Let's see, some of the music. We had Stolen Moments performed by Jimmy Smith and his group. The Lounge Lizards from No Pain for Cakes. Let's see, he took some music, for, some movie music here. We had uh, some music from The Young, from The Interns, The Hustler, The Rose Tattoo, and let's see, my, what was that movie that where they asked the question, what's in the guitar, what's in the guitar case? Desperado. Also, uh, the choir music was from a must-see film by Vim Vendor's Wings of Desire. And most of the music was from the movie called Elfie, which uh, was by Sonny Rollins and Oliver Nelson. And I was even able, even able to work in some pieces from Cowboy Bebop in tonight's story. Well, you've been listening to a re-airing of a production that uh, we did on Gremlin Time back in 2004 with a full cast. I've got to make a correction here. Uh, in the movie Elfie, the music was Sonny Rollins and Quincy Jones. And I think maybe Oliver Nelson had a hand in it, but I don't think he... I think Quincy Jones is mainly behind the music in uh, Elfie, a great, uh, a great movie. And uh, we're going to have a little bit of Tom Waits uh, right now. This is from his album Nighthawks at the Diner. Spare parts, part one. 
original travelogue, yeah. <laughs> Dreams. 
the piss yellow gypsy cabs that stack up in the taxi zones and the waiting like pinball machines to be taken off a joyride to a magical place. Like truckers welcome diners with dirt lots full of Peterbilts and Kenworths and Timmies and the like. They're highballing with bankrupt rates, man, they're overdriven and they're underpaid. They're overfed and they're a day late and a dollar short. But Christ, I got my lips around a bottle and I got my foot on the throttle standing on the corner. I just got in town, Jasper. I'm on a street corner with a gasp. Looking for some kind of a chess or a billboard grin. Stroking a goatee chin. Using parking meters as walking sticks. Now, on the inebriated stroll, with my eyelids propped open at half mast.
that the sun came crawling yellow out of a manhole at the foot of 23rd Street. And a Dracula moon in a black disguise was making its way back to its prepaid room in the St. Moritz Hotel. The L train tumbled across the trestles And it sounded like the ghost of Gene Krupa With an overhead cam and glass packs And the whispering brushes of wet radials on wet pavement With a traffic jam session on Belmont tonight And the rhapsody of the pending evening I lean up against my banister And I've been looking for some kind of an emotional investment With romantic dividends Now, kind of a physical negotiation is underway to consolidate all my missed weekly rendezvous into one low monthly payment through the nose now with romantic residuals and legs akimbo but the chances are that more than likely Underneath a moon hole in water, I'll probably be held over for another smashed weekend. Tom Waits from Nighthawks at the Diner. Uh, this is uh, Fortunato, and you've been listening to Gremlin Time. We'll be back again next month with the uh, bedtime radio show for grown-ups. Stay tuned for self-help radio right here on your favorite community radio station, KBOO Portland. My name is Jeff, and I host a show entitled A Matter of Public Records that is broadcast on KBOO the second and fourth Saturdays of every month from 3 to 6 a.m. It is a somewhat eclectic show where the song choices are often instinctual, based on the prior song. Tune in, and you might hear some instrumentals, some slightly avant-garde music, 
punk, post-punk, indie rock, jazz. To my ears, it is a classic late-night radio show. That's a matter of public records. Every second and fourth Saturday from 3 to 6 a.m. on KBOO 90.7 FM. You're tuned in to listener-supported community radio, KBOO Portland. Does anybody really listen to that shitty music they play on the radio?